Um, oh, you put me on the spot with that one. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably my earliest memory is uh, I'm the youngest of four boys, and my brother must have been turning eight. There's eight, 18 months between us, so he must have, it must have been his seventh or his eighth birthday. And uh, we were on holiday in Filey, of all places, which if you've um, <laughs> if you've never heard of Filey, don't worry, you're not missing anything. And <laughs> if you have heard of Filey, you'll be sitting there thinking, good God, you poor bastard. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a little seaside town stuck between Bridlington and Scarborough. It's kind of, in Northern Irish terms... Um, it's kind of a, a Ballyhalbert sort of town where oh, wow. <laughs> it, it, it's, you know, it, it's a lovely place. The, 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 the beach is beautiful, but there isn't anything there. You know, it's the place where the people who think Bridlington and Scarborough are too busy go and stay and they can pop in rather than actually going. But we're, we're in a caravan there. This is probably 1985, 86, that sort of time. And um, my dad showed up with um, a, a BMX for my brother for his birthday. Wow. And I just remember this feeling of overwhelming jealousy <laughs> <laughs> because this was the coolest bike I'd ever seen. It was yellow and red, uh, a proper BMX. Um, so I, my parents are separated and we were just there with my mum. There was just the, the two youngest boys. Um, so there's the two of us and my mum. And um, yeah, my dad showed up with his BMX and this feeling of utter jealousy. I just remember standing there looking going, why has he got that? And that's my earliest memory. Um, so it's all our Paul's fault and all my dad's fault. That's uh, <laughs> So, you know, did, did you ever like get the BMX like later in life? Like, is this like, uh, you know, you turn 30 and oh my goodness, I need to get this you know, drop two two grand on this super duper Uber BMX. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I actually got the BMX probably about eighteen months after that. Um, oh, when it, yeah. when it when I didn't think it was cool anymore because it used to be our poles and I got a hand me down. But that was the uh, the the joys of growing up as uh, four boys in a single parent family. So when you're the youngest, everything you got belonged to somebody else by the time it landed on your desk. Uh, so I got, uh, I did get that BMX a year later, um, and it wasn't cool by then at that point. But I did, um, uh, I did, yeah, used to go all over the place on it in in a way that I just can't imagine letting my daughter do now. I, you know, must have been like eight or nine, and just would set off on, on a morning and come back in the middle of the afternoon when I was starving, and and you're like, how would that work? You know, mm. Kira's nearly eleven. And uh, like she wants to go to the bottom of the garden, and I'm like, "Well, how long are you going to be? When, when are you going to be back?" So, <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. Uh, so, if you've just jumped in, hello and welcome to Best of Belfast, the podcast that celebrates Northern Ireland and the incredible people in it. Join here today with the uh, incredible Andy Jarvis. You've been hearing from Andy already. Uh, some of those good first memory banter. I always love those early experiences. It's just so random uh, the way they kind of end up. Um, if you're not familiar with Andy, Andy is the founder and strategy director of Eximo Marketing, a marketing strategy consultancy based in Bangor and Liverpool. And their goal, basically in a nutshell, is to help companies find more customers, fix underperforming parts of their campaigns and provide training to educate and engage their teams. So Andy, kind of just on that, like two quick ones. Uh, number one, what does Eximo mean? And then number two, why or sorry, what kind of led to you going out on your own? Um, so num number one, it is, um, 
based heavily in Latin. Um, it's kind of from the same etymology as extract. So it's about taking the ideas out of people and turning them around and delivering them back to the company. So to give you an idea, I... I hate what I refer to as marketing guesswork, uh, which is prevalent <laughs> in the agency industry where agencies will sit and have a coffee with you for an hour. Possibly, if you're lucky, maybe have two coffees with you um, and then come back with this plan that will tell you how you're, um, how they're going to change your world um, because they've spent two hours with you. And you're like, oh, that's brilliant. How the hell can you know anything about a company <laughs> two hours over coffee when you've spent at least 25 minutes of that talking about the weather and another 10 minutes talking about the footy? <laughs> so... It's just guesswork. I, I, you know, it really is, you know, sometimes educated guesswork, but mainly just guesswork. So I different approach. I work with clients. Most of the best ideas for um, marketing companies come from people who work there anyway. People mm. who say, I don't know marketing. Why are you talking to me? Um, so you extract the ideas out of those people. Um, and then put them in the shape, the process, the format, which is where the marketing experience comes in and deliver that back so that everything becomes ordered and sequential and, you know, adds to the benefits to the company effectively. So, um, so that, that's where the name comes from. Um, why did it go? So it's three years. It's coming up to three years since I started the company. Nice uh, yeah. Time flies when you're having fun, eh? Um, <laughs> You've reached the threshold. Like everyone's like, bro, it always takes three years. It always takes three years. And now you're crossing the threshold. Like all of a sudden this magical explosion will happen. Like Warren Buffett comes out, shakes your hand and all. <laughs> yeah. That, I, I mean, uh, you, you're supposed to believe, I think, that once you get to the third birthday, you open the door and like uh, this... Uh, bag full of money just empties in and you're suddenly a millionaire and like oh is that how it works I'm still waiting for that delivery um, but I was working at um, I've worked in agencies for probably about eight years by that point and there was a couple of things happening that I I'd done a, a master's from in, in marketing and I was working in digital agencies uh, which were tactical and I was feeling more like I was moving towards strategic approach of you know you'd go into a meeting and a company would sit there and, and explain a problem to you and you'd sit and you'd look and go well part of the answer to this problem needs to be tv advertising or radio um or or something that that we don't offer but in the digital agency world um you know we there's a lot of pressure from the MD to talk about delivering solutions that make you money rather than the solution that's best for the client. So mm. I just felt like there was a better way. There was um, uh, an independence to it. Um, plus, uh, you know, to be frank as well, I, I was starting, I was going through the early stages of a divorce as well. And that throws a lot of things into sharp relief for you. And I just thought, you know what, if I'm not going to do it now, I don't think I'm ever going to do it. So oh, totally. stuff this, I shall pull it all together. And it, it went from, half an idea to resignation letter written within yeah, probably about two months, I would say. I mean, wow. I'd been thinking about it for a lot longer than that, but it got to the point where I was like, right, I need to work. If, dump, 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 bump. And then, you know, once I started pushing the dominoes, the whole thing started falling. So it was, uh, yeah, and it's been great ever since. That's class, man. Very, very cool. So originally from Bradford, uh, Andy's worked with a number of global brands, some of Northern Ireland's biggest businesses, to develop and implement marketing campaigns. And like you said, you have a master's in marketing. Did you find the master's beneficial? Was that something that was helpful for you? Or is it the credibility that comes with the piece of paper? Because I've always wondered that in like fast-moving 
industries like marketing or like anything to do with IT, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. No, no. Uh, so, yeah, yes, it is the honest answer. Cool. And uh, no, I found it really helpful. I, I studied at Ulster Uni and I think a third of what I studied was uh, was new to me. About a third was um, uh, just rehashing of good basic concepts. And then a third was uh, garbage that was put on to try and put bums on seats, I would say. But on, <laughs> on balance, I actually, I really enjoyed the course. And, and with all of these things, you get out what you put in. But I think the thing with with marketing being a fast-moving discipline is that we've um, uh, there's a lot of people in marketing who will tell you that everything's changed. And um, the they're wrong basically Mm. there's a lot of stuff in marketing that changes really quickly and if you break marketing down if you could see me waving my hands around now that might help but if you break marketing down into strategy and tactics um the strategic element of marketing is exactly the same as it was um when marketing was invented as a discipline in the 30s and kind of codified in the 50s um Strategy is still the same thing. Who are you targeting? Why are they going to buy from you? What are your objectives? What does the brand stand for? All of those things haven't changed. And that's the strategic element. And it doesn't matter the fact that the tactical element has changed hugely. You know, when I first started marketing, one of my first jobs was um, managing direct mail. Uh, we used to do about a million mail shots a month. Unreal. And, uh, you know, we, there was no Facebook. There was no Twitter. Uh, I built a MySpace page for a company I worked for in 2005, maybe. Um, you know, and, and this was revolutionary stuff. But actually, if I go back to what I was doing in direct mail days, um, you know, the letter writing, the the focus on the headlines and things like that. Well, if you look at what bloggers do now, what, mm. what do they do? They focus on the headlines. They look at how they structure. How do they break up? The, if you look at uh, any successful blog, how is the content structured on the page? Short sentences, one or two line sentences, uh, paragraphs of one or two sentences broken up, long sentences, short sentences to make it easy to read so you can slip down the page. That's not new. Right, that's been part of the direct mail industry that the Americans pioneered uh, post First World War. Right, there's nothing new there; it's just been delivered slightly differently. So uh, th- there's a whole pile of steaming shite that's talked about <laughs> marketing, which, which is all about everything's changed, everything's different, nothing's changing as much as it has been doing uh, in the last ten years. You're like, honestly, if that's what you think, go on and read about what happened at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Mm. Right, just because we've gone from dial-up internet to five G on an iPhone handset in ten years, I mean these are amazing transformations. But go back to the beginning of the industrial revolutions when these things called cities were invented. You know, the weekend became a thing. <laughs> right? You know, the weekend wasn't this magical thing that that's always been there. The weekend happened, right? Because. Um, uh, cities happened industrial you know we industrialized we went from living in villages into this move towards industrial towns and cities and then people started working and then the religious element got sundays off and you know there's a reason sheffield wednesday are called sheffield wednesday because you used to get the half day wednesday and they played football then because you worked saturdays and sundays was your day, were your day off you know these huge structural changes in how we live happened. So don't tell me that because we can now access videos and order food on, on our handset that the world's changing faster than it ever has. So it's like, yeah, it's, yeah, great. You've shown me a graph of how many things are connected to the internet to prove your point. Like, come on. 
So there is a lot of rubbish spoken about marketing, and people will be listening to this going, yeah, he's talking rubbish too. He doesn't know what he's on about. <laughs> but you know, you know, look, Facebook, if a university wants to teach you about Facebook or search engine optimization or pay-per-click advertising, right, run away as fast as you can because yeah. that's not what they're there to do. Yeah. The way that they plan content, they have to plan something now which has to get authorized and signed off and be academically rigorous. Anything they're planning now isn't going to be taught until September uh, 21 at the earliest, possibly even 22, right? Now, by that point, anything they're teaching you about Facebook, TikTok, Twitch, <laughs> uh, Twitter, uh, PPC, SEO, CRO, whatever acronym you want to throw at it, anything they want to teach you about that is going to be out of date. But anything they want to teach you about uh, how people buy, about um, consumer buying behavior, about marketing strategy, about persona work, about uh, missions and visions and stuff like that, that'll last you forever. So as long as universities stick to what they're good at, I'd definitely say to anybody, invest in your education as often as you can. That's unreal. Um, so to kind of contextualize the rest of all this going forward then i'll ask you the question of all questions and uh really simply what is your definition of marketing what is my definition of marketing well there, there's lots of different and slightly uh tweaked definitions and kotler is usually the one that, that people lean to um but i'm not philip kotler so i'll give you a slightly different <laughs> one um Marketing to me is, uh, the definition of it is about the market. It is, to me, a people discipline that focuses on taking your product or service and explaining to the, and deciding who you want to sell that to and giving them reasons to believe and reasons to buy your product. Everything else is just a pipe in the middle that delivers that dream to them, right? So all the channels, all the TV advertising, all the social media, writing blogs, podcasting is just the pipe mm. that connects your product or service and why people should buy it to the people who you want to buy it. And at its heart, marketing is just the circle around those three things. Unreal. So I, I mean, just to kind of finish off your bio there, apologies, I botched that. I have uh, interrupted myself to the point where it's like, people are <laughs> like, what the heck is going on here? Um you guest lecture in Liverpool, John Murray University, so that's cool. You kind of have mm -hmm. uh, now gone full circle in that circle of life, and now you're on the other side. Would you focus on principles? Do you focus on kind of tactics whenever you do that, or what's your kind of role in that? Yeah, so I talk because I've got a, quite a strong digital background. I do a lot on the the digital strategy module, which the, the opening bit. That of what I teach them is that actually, if you get strategy right, it's not about digital, it's about strategy. Mm. Uh, so that's the opening lecture done. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's basically, I, I take that uh, academic approach first. Here's the strategy, here's the, the models, here's the principles you should be thinking of. And then here's how we use this digitally in my work with clients or you know some of the stuff I've done previously in agencies and then set them a real world task. So something that I've been involved in previously or uh, something that's live at the minute. You know, So we set the students this year, uh, we set them a task to write a digital marketing plan for a travel company that's been affected by COVID-19. Um, this was kind of January, February time, and the presentations were all made remotely um, at the end of the course because COVID had decimated the university as well. So, uh, yeah, it, it's um, 
it, it's an interesting thing, and it, it's great to lecture. Uh, the MSc, I do the Masters and, and something slightly different with the undergrad as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's good to be back, and it keeps you on your toes. That's awesome. Cool. So I guess this kind of moves us into, um, I usually try to stay away from controversy on the podcast. You should try to keep it kind of very, very light. But I guess like something that we couldn't avoid talking about is um, the fact that whenever you you know <clears throat> sent through some stuff about what you want to talk about today, that you said that soda bread is crap. Search your heart, Matthew. <laughs> Search your heart and you know it to be true. <laughs> right, I'll tell you what. I, I must be like subconsciously, it must have been channeling this for like the last week because I swear this wasn't planned. I sat down this morning, like literally like seven o'clock there an hour ago um, with a cup of tea and I realized what I was eating and I was flipping eating a piece of soda bread, like toasted soda bread with butter on it. And I never, mm-hmm. ever, ever do that. But I was like, what is going on? Like, is there like some sort of like weird Freudian thing where because Andy told me he doesn't like soda bread that I feel like I have to eat it? <laughs> this is it. I think it's a microaggression that you're, uh, <laughs> you're throwing my way. But uh, so I, I, I've been here now 10 years, right? Uh, I've been coming for probably closer to 20. Um, so I've been here a lot, and there's a lot to love about Northern Ireland, and and I'm a big fan. And you know, you you love all the good sort of foods, you know, bread, Guinness. Um, that's it, isn't it? Bread and Guinness and meat as well. Right? <laughs> uh, uh, Vida bread, world class, right? Uh, especially if you do it right. Potato mm. bread, I don't eat a massive amount of because I don't fry a lot of stuff. But when you've got a bit of a hangover, some dirty uh, potato mm. bread gone through the pan, I said, oh, my. It, you know, you can understand why it's great, but you can understand why it ruins your life expectancy as well. <laughs> I get that. And all the local bakers who do different breads, I'm not a fan of... Uh, uh, I can't remember the companies. It Irwin's who do the nutty crust or whatever. But uh, yeah, I like that there's different stuff on the market. Yeah. Soda bread, though, it's like, oh, man. it's The problem is right. when it's used in a sandwich, and well, not even just that, but just generally, is that <laughs> it's too... The it becomes about the bread, right? So everything's wrong with it. The dimensions are wrong. It's too thick. It's too floury. It's like how much of your cup of tea had you drunk by one mouthful of soda? Bread? You take a bite of soda bread, and then you look at your glass, and you're like, "I've drunk a gallon of liquid for a bite of bread," and it's like that's not right. And if you put anything in soda bread like you go to a cafe sometimes oh do you want a bacon soda and you're like well no because i'd need 45 rashes of bacon <laughs> to make it work to balance out the the, the um ratio of, of bread to, to filling it just doesn't work okay so, so this is know, actually great because i i actually i really empathize with you now and i actually completely agree with you i don't think soda bread works filled like i don't even no. filled soda which is like a staple over here Personally, nah. I would rather I'd rather have two bits of potato bread and uh, you know put my breakfast inside that. Uh, mm. And like you said, it's just it's it's too bready. But as a bread itself, as a solo item, I gotta say I, I I am a big fan. But have you ever tried the kind of the the more Irish soda bread? And um, it's kind of more traditional, like down south. It's a little bit more like a scone rather than a I don't know a desert bread. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I think I, I've tried. Uh, I, my, one of my neighbours, a couple of doors up, makes her own soda bread, and I'd have to admit that that is uh, is better. I mean, you know, it's much better on the continuum of soda bread compared to the, the shop bought stuff. And I think the more more homemade it is, um, the, the better it can be. 
but you know, if, you, if somebody offers you a soda bread, you know, oh, do you want a filled soda? I'm like, oh no, no, <laughs> why would you? So I, I, you know, I'm aware I'll probably have a lynch mob, um, you know, banging down the door fairly soon. But uh, I just, it, it's not for me, and um, I'll uh, I'll argue and fight with anybody who says it's brilliant. But, well, uh, that's fair. I mean, it, it's it's grounded in in pretty reasonable uh, concepts, so <laughs> we'll uh, we'll we'll definitely give you the pass for that. What is what was it like coming over to Northern Ireland? Uh, this weird and wonderful and strange and eccentric little part of the world. Yeah, so my my first trip would have been uh, probably two thousand, uh, maybe early two thousand and one. So when what was a Good Friday Agreement was what ninety eight. So the first time I landed at Belfast City Airport. Uh, I think it was a Gill Airways flight for, uh, um, uh, if say, ask your mum and dad about that, they'll tell you, uh, in the old <laughs> Belfast City Airport before they built the new terminal. And I remember being struck, because as a kid growing up in the 80s, right, um, we watched a lot of the news in our house and you would see Belfast on the telly, never in a good light. You would see bomb happened here, explosion there. Um, my, my all-time favourite was um, there was still a ban on... IRA uh, terrorists generally, I think, but IRA people having their voice heard on the news. Wow. So they always had like uh, Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness on and being overdubbed by somebody oh my <laughs> because goodness. their voices weren't allowed to be heard. I mean, I'm going to be so honest. I've never, ever heard of that in my life. Have you not? Me, oh, I, I'm actually, mate. I'm shell-shocked. Like, finding out this new information and I'm also scundered. I'm like, oh my goodness, how sheltered of a life have I had being born in 95? <laughs> oh, mate, you youths, this is all, the kids of today. Eh? And, and, look, and do you know what? It's it's beautiful that you don't, know, you don't know any of this and you don't have to know any of this. You know, it's funny. Uh, I, someone was on yesterday and they were saying... Uh, uh, their 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 daughter came home and was talking about something and the, the dad was like oh no did you hear about that and she was like history class and he said he nearly <laughs> cried because he's like was so glad that it was yeah. in history class if that makes sense but i have this yeah. weird thing in my head it sounds like almost like you know those um kind of like voice voice distorter things it's like <laughs> what was it like it it, it wasn't do you know what it, it was like watching the telly drunk, right? And that, that's the only way I can describe it. So you, you turn the telly on and there'd be this, uh, this hor- horrific bomb attack and, and sort of people uh, people had died from it. And and then obviously, as the news does, you know, they, they have kind of um, very sort of sombre politician mm. on. And bearing in mind, this is the, the late 80s, right? So you've got big lapels, uh, thick, thick glasses, right? Uh, so massive it, it ties, just, really yeah, wide but, yeah, ties. <laughs> yeah, all of that, right? And you've got so very, and the Tories were in power, so every politician talked exactly the same. It's just terrible things that the Northern Irish are doing. Uh, so you've got all that going on, right? And then you flip to, and then in newsroom you become. Um, but Jerry Adams from Sinn Féin had something else to say, and then you'd get this picture of Jerry again, big beard, thick glasses, and the. The, the, he'd start talking, but then, like a fraction of a second later, <laughs> this dubbed voice would come on. Most of the time, it was in a local accent, and I understand. Oh Do you remember uh, Butch Dingle from Emmerdale? This will blow your mind, by the way. I'm not a big Emmerdale fan, but it was filmed just down the road from where I was from. Butch, D- the Dingle family were kind of well, just look. It's a soap. They were kind of a fun family to be there. Mm. Butch Dingle was the the big chunky ginger fella, and he had this weak broad Yorkshire accent. <laughs> 
I found out years later that Butch Dingle isn't from Yorkshire. He went to, or he is English, I think, but he went to Methody. What? Uh, he went to school at Methody. And as an early, early stage actor, he was one of the voices no of uh, Jerry Adams and Martin McGinnis. Are you serious? So Imagine I that believe, on your CV. Right? So what sort of things have you done before? Yeah, well, you know, I've been in this small indie film. Uh, I did the dub <laughs> over for Jerry Adams. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd have, but his accent, because he, he, I think he grew up here to English parents. So maybe he was from here and then moved to England. I can't remember which way around it was, but the accent was brilliant. But occasionally, obviously, somebody local wasn't available to do the overdub. So you'd have, I am sure, bearing in mind I was only like nine and ten, but I am sure I once heard either a female accent or something oh, like that. So good. So, because there was this law that banned them from having their voices heard or airtime or something yeah, like that. Yeah. So. So this is what Northern Ireland was. It was this strange place where, where men with beards... Um, spoke like women. Spoke like women. Um, and weird stuff happened and paramilitaries turned up at funerals. And it was just like, it was like another world. You yeah. know, it only came into your front room that way. Then I turned up, at, to get back to where I started, I turned up at Belfast City Airport, walked through the airport with, with my girlfriend at the time. And... Who are you greeted by? Soldiers wearing bloody tin hats, carrying massive Whoa. guns and sitting out the back of Land Rovers. And you're looking at that going, where the hell have I come? Have I it's come the tin route? hats in that equation that I think is the most perplexed. It's like, is this, are we like World War II right now? Uh, so that the very first time I came, I saw soldiers um, with, who were in full combat gear. And I remember, like, I phoned my mum to let her know that I'd got here. And she was like, so how is it? I was like, this, it's like a war zone with the soldiers on the street. Wow. Now, uh, you then you jump in the car and you come to, to Bangor and you're having BT20 and you're like, ah, <laughs> oh, it's lovely here. Ah, yeah. um, uh, yes, there's my cafe Nero. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> That's it. It's like, oh, oh there's a Marks and Spencer. Wonderful. Um, uh, but the, the soldiers weren't patrolling the streets then. They were just at the airport. I've, mm. I've never been stopped by soldiers stopping you going into shops and things and roadblocks never had their hand and out yeah. like discover ni uh little like business cards like, welcome <laughs> yeah. to northern ireland <laughs> yeah welcome i think if you said welcome to northern ireland on one side and when you turned it over it said angie welcome to it and that was it, it was like, um so the time after i came back i remember i was looking for the soldiers um they they were more in sort of berries and had guns, <laughs> but were more handguns rather than the industrial ones that they that they oh, carried. Um, and uh, and then after that, you know, I've never so two trips I saw soldiers, and after that, I've never seen anyone since. But the, the other thing you have to remember is that I, I very quickly got an induction from um, uh, that my my girlfriend went on to be my wife now my ex wife so I've gone kind of gone full circle but her dad a guy called Nevin gave me quite early on a, an induction into Northern Ireland and, and he sort of we were having a pint in his local pub and after a couple of beers he had a quiet conversation with me and he was like listen I just need to kind of tell you how you might want to answer some questions if anybody asks you I was like wow. why and he was like well you have to remember so I'm black I'm English I'm twenty and I've got a shaved head. And I'm quite athletic looking. I like it. <laughs> and and he was basically, you know, he basically had to sit me down and I said, right, there are people here who will just look at you and assume you're a soldier. And I was like, but I'm a student. And you know, I was like, can soldiers shoot people? I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a lefty, right? I was like, I don't go around killing people. And he's like, nobody's going to come and talk to you about your politics. People are going to hear your accent and go, you're a squaddy. Mm. And that, in some places, might make you a target. Mm -hmm. Uh 
a target for what? And he was like, you really sit down. <laughs> so, you know, you're, you're very quickly, I and mean, this is 2000, probably 2000, 2001, uh, where you very quickly get somebody warning you that you may well be uh, a target for somebody who wants to do you some harm. Mm-hmm. And he's like, but I'm just here because I love the place and I want, you know, it's a couple of beers. And he's like, yeah, but don't go into that bar. And if you go into Belfast, don't go down here. And when you go there, don't go. And you're like, oh, shit, this place really is weird. That's crazy. Um, crazy. Uh, but yeah, that, that was kind of welcome to Northern Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> that is mental. Man, I just, there's so much in that. You've you've taught me a lot about Northern Ireland, which is like uh, my favorite thing about doing this podcast. So uh, no, I thoroughly enjoyed that wee bit there. That was good crack. Um, I'm wondering if there's anything that has kind of, naturally improved your marketing chops now that's a weird question so let me give you an example um i was brought up in a very religious family and would have gone to church like you know 20 times a week sort of thing so i think one day i like sat down and i figured out like how many sermons do you think have i heard in my lifetime and it's like trillions right um (laughs) but I, i was always interested like if you had a good speaker you almost would feel like you you wanted to like get saved and like have a salvation experience every single Sunday. You know, you're, you're like, oh my goodness, like this guy, like, he, he, like he, he's, the call to action is so strong that I feel like I must convert. And it's funny now, like I, you know, most of my work is copywriting and I'm in that sort of world. And I was thinking about this the other day and I was like, wow, my, I kind of have like this natural built-in structure for a blog post or for an ad or for a story probably based on just that repetition of like strong sermon structures where it's like set up middle call to action set up middle call to action and so is there anything that has kind of in your life i suppose mirrored that sort of experience um yeah so the the one um there was one particular moment i remember that sparked sparked me on to to get a lot better at, at various things and it's actually something to bring it back to a local context that I think is missing from the Northern Ireland business experience. Um, I uh, So I worked at Durham County Cricket Club, so professional cricket. I was, um, I'd been there a year and became marketing manager and uh, was, was doing pretty well, sort of quite quickly hit a real aggressively upward career trajectory and, and thought that I was ready to take on the world. And I was doing great stuff. We had... Um, a record attendance, followed by another record attendance, followed by the first sellout at an international game that we'd had. Kind of, it felt for a little while that, for a year or two, that everything I did turned to gold. And it was like, yeah, I'm oh, fantastic yeah. at this. Yeah, you know, touch, baby. Yeah, so, I, I, you know, um, we've got England cricket games, we've got Elton John concerts, still the record crowd for the venue, and it just like all sorts of great stuff going on. But in the middle of all this, we've got a new chairman. And the one thing that wasn't going well was membership was declining. So membership's like season tickets at cricket. Um, And it had been declining for 10 years, for five years maybe. And it was declining at every county around the the country. So I'd looked at that and gone, well, everybody's in decline. I'm not interested. So we got a new chairman. I was asked to come in and present to the new chairman, one of the board members of the CEO, um, and the commercial director who was my boss about what we were going to do in marketing terms. So I went in with this, you know, great presentation. We're going to, we've got this coming up, that coming up, this coming up. Uh, and the chairman said, what about membership? And I was like, ah, it doesn't matter. You know, it's in decline. It's this, it's that, the other. Everyone's declined. You just kind of stock glib answer um, and moved on to the next thing. And he went, let me stop you there, Andrew. 
Uh, okay. Not the Andrew. He pulled out. <laughs> yeah. He pulled out the hard EW. Oh yeah, the Andrew was rolled out and like, oh here we go. Um, and then pretty much emptied me for five minutes Oof. about the um, uh, the the lack of thought, the lack of planning that had gone into it, the accepted sort of acceptance of received wisdom, uh, not challenging it, a lack of. Just a lack of everything, basically. And I had no defense for any of it because he was right. Um, I had kind of focused on what was going well, completely ignored this. And he said, how much is uh, membership was worth as a revenue stream to us? Like, I don't know. Like, well, and he quickly flicked through the figures and he was like, 22% of revenue. And you're just writing it off and you're wow. not looking at it. And you're like, uh and it, it was, uh, I mean, if you asked me genuinely, I think it lasted for about four and a half days, the um, the blasting I received. Mm. It was probably no more than two minutes, but it felt like it went on forever. And I walked out of that completely crestfallen, just utterly like, oh my God, what's just happened? Um, my boss, the commercial director, um, it was sort of towards the end of the day, I, he said, look, we'll catch up tomorrow morning about it. And we sat, we had a coffee and... Turned that awful moment into one of the most positive experiences of my life. Wow! In that, you, I realised then, really early on in my career, that actually you can't just write things off just because somebody says that they're not working on it. You've got to look at it yourself. You've got to put the same effort into it and, and understand the, the challenge. What's relevant to you? Now, it might be that membership would have still continued to decline. Um, but Gordon, who was the manager at the time, sort of put his arm around me and helped me and kind of rebuilt my confidence. I said, look, let's have a look at this. Let's throw it at it. We did some research. We talked to members. Um, we, we did a lot of understanding why people become members. And we had, I think it was 28 membership categories. And over the course of that season, we, we, oh, it was ridiculous, right? You know, we had the... Um, 60 to 62 membership, the 63 to 67. <laughs> it was just, it, it had just bloated, right? And actually what we found out was that people just wanted to either be part of something, watch a bit of cricket. Uh, there was kind of a few reasons people wanted to, to be a member. So we scrapped all the 28 membership categories and rebuilt them based around the three or four things people wanted. Um, and then we had the sort of junior categories as well. So we ended up with about eight membership categories. Uh, and what happened? Membership went up Boom. the next year. We're the only county in the country that year that had membership increasing. We managed to, for most people, cut the cost of their membership. Not for everybody. Some people who were, who were heavy users paid more. But for a lot of people, we cut the cost of their membership and we drove revenue up the following year as well. Now, if the chairman wouldn't have gone through me, wouldn't have mm. absolutely rinsed me that day, I'd have battered on regardless and I would have um, just gone on thinking, well, yeah, everything's fine in the world. Taught me a huge lesson. And, and to bring it back to a, a Northern Irish context, I've been involved in several meetings, several pitches, presentations, several bits of client work where somebody, sometimes the agency or me that I've been working with, and sometimes other people have not stepped up, have, have not been good enough have not delivered to the standard that i expect mm. or i think they should have been delivering and when you talk to people like right you know somebody will say to, to me we're going to get rid of that company or we're going to stop working with that agency because they're, they're just not good enough and okay well let's bring them in and tell them oh no i couldn't do that why not <laughs> well 
I play golf with his dad. Or, <laughs> you know, his brother goes to school, his, his uh, next door neighbor goes to school with my son. And you're like, and? Oh, but, you know, oh, you know, we're at church together. I couldn't possibly. And like, but that experience of somebody telling you that you're not good enough is, is really difficult. It's really, really hard to do. But if you don't hear that, you just carry on blindly thinking everything was all right and, oh, well, it's just because they've had a budget cut that they stopped working with. It's like, no, they stopped working with you because you were shit. Mm. But if nobody ever tells you you're shit, you never know you're shit. <laughs> so you need to – so there's two ends of that. You need to give people that direct and honest feedback. When you don't think they're good enough, you need to tell them that. And then from the other side, you need to give people a mechanism to be able to feel confident that they can tell you that you shit. So I, I do anonymous surveys with every company I work with after I finish working with them so that, and it's anonymous for a reason, so that they can tell me what they really think. Mm -hmm. Because I know people are afraid of, if they have to put the name to it, of going, I didn't think that worked. So uh, you, you've got, you know, but that feedback mechanism, that negative is actually been one of the most positive issues of my career. That's so awesome. I think like in that world of marketing, like particularly as outsiders looking in, you kind of picture the advertising world and you picture mad men and you picture, you know, like evil crooks wearing suits, rubbing their like money greedy hands together and thinking, ah, how can we trick this poor little consumer into doing what we want them to do? I think what I like about your approach, particularly with uh, the Eximo stuff is you're more interested in taking people on a journey that they want to go on, but also being honest in that process as well. And that example you just shared there, I think honesty is a underrated tactic. And I think marketers sometimes feel like they can't be honest, never mind tapping into the power that honesty can actually bring. Yeah, look, integrity is a, a huge word for me. And that, you know, so from a, a personal business point of view is that you, you've got to operate with integrity. And I don't think you should have to have it in your list of core values that you want to operate with integrity. <laughs> if you have to say it in your list of core values, you've already made a cock up of it anyway, right? Um, it's a bit like, you know, anyone who's, it's a bit like being cool, isn't it, right? Anyone who has to tell you they're cool isn't. <laughs> and, and it's a bit like, if anyone has to tell you they're honest, they're not. <laughs> That's it. You know, honest John's car sales, you know you're going get, gonna to get ripped off. So, uh, yeah, I think there's, there's an element of it there, but there's a, I think there's a little bit of a, a misunderstanding of, of how advertising works sometimes. Like people think advertisers can, um, change people's beliefs. So, you know, they show you this really world-class ad and all of a sudden you want to go out and spend some money that you don't have because they've got this great psychological trick on yeah, you. Yeah, witchcraft. It, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and advertising can change behaviours. If you look at uh, seatbelts, for example, right, there was a, a multi-year advertising campaign before your time called Clunk Click Every Trip. And people of a certain uh, generation, of a certain vintage, will know all about that. And we went from a country where, uh, you know, when I grew up, in, again, in the early 80s, you just jumped in the back of a car, and that was it. There might be four or five of you in the back seat of a car, nobody wearing a seatbelt, nobody in the front seat wearing one yet. Car crash, everybody went through the window, lots of people died. Over a relatively short space of time, maybe five or six years, the law changed, everyone had to wear a seatbelt, massive advertising campaign, and it was one of the reasons why um, it, that drove those instances down, like wow. stop smoking campaigns and stuff like that. So advertising can have that effect when it's multi-year, millions spent, lots mm. of stuff happening. So when you see an ad 
um, for something like a, a holiday to Croatia or something like that, right? That advertising is not suddenly made you run out and buy that holiday. If you were thinking about a holiday anyway, it might influence your consideration of where you might go. And you go, oh, that looks interesting. I'll start researching it. So yes, it can have that effect on you. But if you saw an advert for a $10,000 Rolex or 10,000 quid Rolex, you're not suddenly going to go and run out and buy one. Mm. If you were in the market for a $10,000 watch, then you might go and buy it. Or, you know, if you were in the market for a $7,000 one, you might think, okay, I'll spend some more and get a 10. Mm -hmm. But if, you know, when the last time I went to buy a watch and, you know, I was looking for a 25 quid sports watch to go running with, (laughs) I've not suddenly seen this advert for Rolex and gone, that's it. I want a Rolex now. Yeah. You know, so it doesn't quite work, you know, in that sort of evil genius sort of way. That's not to say that it can't affect and change how people think. Um, you know, the, the famous VW ad from the 50s, uh, I think it was Bill Birnbach who did that one. Um, and if I've said, if I've got the wrong person, there'll be people screaming going, it wasn't Birnbach. <laughs> um, but VW um, was, you know, became this huge, if you think of what American cars were in the 50s, these massive Cadillacs and things like that. Mm. And the VW was this tiny little German car. Bearing in mind the Second World War finished five, six, seven years before this, right? And uh, VW suddenly became a desirable car in the 50s in America on the back of one ad. It's crazy. That I think Bill Birnbeck did. And uh, I, I mean, look, th- this is a, a quote from the 50s. So just to uh, as a warning to anyone. <laughs> Trigger it, warning. It, it hasn't <laughs> aged well. But you have to think about this. This was said by um, a, a Jewish guy in New York in the 50s. And he said something along the lines about that advert. He said, uh, Birnbach's made a Nazi car sell in a Jewish town. Wow. And if you think about that from the the vantage point, not of 2020, but of 1955, because, you know, Volkswagen, Volkswagen, people's car, it it was the car company set up by Hitler. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah the, the, the car scheme, like the employee scheme where they, everyone thought they were going to get a car in five years that actually that money ended up being used to build tank Volkswagen. <laughs> yeah. But but this is this is the reality of it. This is the company that built Nazi car. You know, that, that was a Nazi company that built German cars. Ten years after the end of the war, bearing in mind the Holocaust killed 10 million Jewish people and the point that they were making was that you know, uh, New York had a very high Jewish population, yeah. and people were buying it because of this one ad. And if you can find the ad, just Google uh, VW. I think it's called Think Small. Um, if you just Google it, you'll see it's this real. Uh, it's the opposite of everything you'd expect to see from a 1950s ad, and it's the, the car's the opposite of everything you'd see in a 1950s American car, and it just works. So it can have a transformational impact, but most advertising you see is just garbage um, and not even particularly good garbage, to be honest with you. Yeah. So, I mean, like, would you say that one way to look at marketing is changing people from one state into another, even if it is a very gradual process? Yeah. Yeah. I I think most marketing works at a, a lot of it works in sort of a consideration and selection phase. So, you know, there's a principle of marketing that I think you can't buy anything if you've never heard of it. Mm. Right? That's the awareness stage, and and a lot of there's a lot of time spent trying to make people aware of you. Um, but a lot of 
marketing, certainly consumer advertising. Sorry, I'm switching between marketing and advertising, which is something I hate when people do. But if you just look at advertising, a lot of advertising works at the selection point. So I am in the market for a product, I and therefore you're trying to make people buy this product over that product. Uh, that's where a lot of advertising works at. Marketing generally is kind of the, the, the level up from that. It's, it's looking more at the... Uh, the, the reasons why people might want that. So, you, well, four Ps, that's a good way to look at it. Product, price, place, promotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people think marketing is just the promotion element. Um, so that's when you hear people say, oh, will you market this for us? And you mean, you, you mean promote it or advertise <laughs> it? You know, that, that, that's, that's what you mean. But products, price, place, and promotion. So it's kind of the level up from the advertising bit. But it, it is about trying to understand what people want to do, uh, why they'd want to use your product, um, what price are they prepared to pay for it, what's the tolerance to it. And all of those things are all part of marketing, but pricing particularly doesn't land in marketers' jobs these days. Yeah. And it really goes beyond products. Like what you were saying about the the whole seatbelt thing, like they weren't selling a product. They were really selling an idea, but it was still marketing. Yeah. I mean, sort of, you know, some of the stuff the government does um, sort of taps into marketing principles. And, and if you think of, you know, social sciences often bleed into one another anyway, a, a very different ways. So uh, ethnography, which is the process of watching people do stuff and and scientific process of watching people do stuff and trying to understand why they do it is an anthropological study but is used quite heavily in marketing to understand how people use products and and what they do afterwards so it's a fairly uh standard concept certainly for bigger companies uh psychology um suddenly bleeds into buying psychology consumer buying behavior and that that bleeds in so if you look at a lot of the stuff that governments do so at that sort of behavioral change level it often starts kind of in um, as policy. We want people to wear seatbelts or we want people to enroll in pensions and things like that. But it soon tips into marketing is the way that they, the, the, the pathway they use to, to deliver that. But not always. So to give you an example, um, the, the government has a thing called, they used to have a thing called the nudge unit, which mm. is using sort of behavioral psychology principles to illicit behaviors that the government wants that's not it's not quite as sinister as it sounds right it's not trying to make people sheep and go out and vote for who they want but things like um if you auto enrollment pensions came from the nudge unit so they were looked at this and said well actually the, the friction point the thing that's stopping people signing up for pensions is usually inertia oh i should have a pension yes why haven't you got a pension? Oh, because I have to find that bit of paperwork. I have to bring that guy. I have to, I have to sign up that thing. I'll do it tomorrow. As soon as they made the switch and said, right, well, let's make it that you are automatically enrolled mm-hmm. until you have to unenroll yourself. And all of a sudden, 85% of people, you the inertia that, that stops people from signing up for a pension stops them opting out of it as well. Mm-hmm. So we went from, I think it was 85% uptake of that with, or pretty much overnight because of using behavioral psychology and that kind of it's kind of on the integration between marketing and psychology and and then they had an advertising campaign out the back of that to tell people that it was going to happen so they're all intertwined you know these sort of silos and boxes that people think things sit in don't necessarily hold true certainly at government and enterprise level when you're working with massive companies so yeah there's a lot of interesting stuff happens with that that's cool this is a fairly hard pivot but one of the reasons why I started 
Bastard of Belfast and something that I say quite a lot is that Northern Ireland has a marketing problem. And all I kind of mean by that from my context of being 18 and leaving Northern Ireland because I thought it was crap is because I wasn't aware of some of the great things that was going on here. And so in a way, Bastard of Belfast is my attempt to market the people here mm-hmm. and the country and the opportunities and even just the interest and stories to, you know, a wider audience. So I kind of look at that as a marketing problem. And I know you have spoken really recently and had some really fascinating insights on the whole Black Lives Matter movement and the whole race conversation that has really kind of grown exponentially over the last few months. How much do you think racism or even if you want to stay local sectarianism is a marketing problem. And if you turn around and say, that's a load of BS, go ahead and say that. <laughs> I, I don't want to force words into your mouth, but how do you, what's your kind of thoughts in that sort of arena? Um, so to sort of go back to the beginning of what you said, I, I think Northern Ireland over the last few years has done a much, much better job of promoting what's great about the place. The tourist board do a fantastic job. And if you look at tourism numbers, they are up until COVID anyway, they were rocketing. And people uh, within the country traveling more and more sort of domestic visits as well. I I think it's a human condition that everyone... I mean, I I love living here and I, I think I've been to every tourist destination ever in Northern <laughs> Ireland. And I'm constantly amazed how many people I talk to. And I go, oh, have you done? And you go, oh, there's not to do. And I was like, well, have you been here? Have you been there? No, no, no. Why would I go there? Wait, it's where, just 10 minutes where, down the road. What's Scrabble? Scrabble Tower? I've never heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> what would you go there for? It's shut. And you're like, because you get these amazing views, you know. So, mm. but this isn't just a Northern Irish thing, right? I go back to Bradford. I go back to, you know, I'm in Liverpool a lot as well, and I go there, and people are like, oh, you know, it's a bit crap, and you're like, this is an amazing place. Um, I, I, I do have a positive bent to things as well, but um, so, so there is that element, and I think they're doing the tourist board's doing a, a great job generally of, of showcasing what's great about the place, and I do sometimes wish some of the locals would maybe just go and experience some of these places rather than going. Oh, Jane, I have to pay five quid to get in. It's like, no, well, we'll just fund this thing for free, shall we, out of the public purse? Oh, yeah, but I want to pay less tax. And you're like, you don't think you understand how this works, mate. You know, you got to pay for something you somehow. You want too much. I know. We want everything. Okay. Uh, so, so there is that. And then, uh, you know, rolling into Black Lives Matter, how much of it is a marketing problem? I think I would say it's probably more of an education problem. Um, because I think education in Northern Ireland is one of those things that you're not allowed to talk about because everybody thinks it's fantastic. Um, and it is to an extent, and it is for a certain bunch of people in a certain place. Uh, but I think educa- the education system in Northern Ireland is fundamentally broken. Mm-hmm. And until people start talking about it and there's some actual desire to fix it, I don't see this place getting any better. And I could see that in 50 years' time, we'll still be having conversations about sectarianism, uh, even though the troubles will hopefully be a distant memory because kids are still educated in um, Catholic schools and non-Catholic schools. Um, uh, and it makes no sense to me. I genuinely, I don't think religion has a place in, in education. Um, people will disagree, but I, I, while you've got kids getting on buses and traveling from Bangor to Belfast to go to school because it's a Catholic school mm-hmm. and not then integrating and talking to other kids. And it's not that they don't get along with each other or they couldn't get along with each other. They're just separated. 
And I think you've got the grammar school system, which segregates uh, people at 11 based on how a 10-year-old can sit through an exam, um, which I think is a barbaric relic of a system that should have been burned years ago. Um, <laughs> and what we don't talk about, because on average, Northern Ireland outperforms the UK average, we go, ah, our education system's fine. Yeah. And you go, no, it's not. The grammar school system is fantastic and delivers over average results. The rest of the system is shit and delivers some of the worst results in the UK. But we don't talk about that. Why? Mm. Because the people with a platform, the people in power, the people with the microphones, their kids pass the exams and go to the good schools. And they go, well, why would I want Campbell or Methody to be made worse by having some of those thick kids come there? There's no <laughs> desire for anybody to do anything. So yeah. I think Northern Ireland has an education problem uh, rather than necessarily a marketing problem when it comes to you know, issues like Black Lives Matter, uh, you only have to look at the comments on... I mean, the first rule of the internet, right, is don't ever read the comments. <laughs> but I, I have broken my my own first rule several times in the last four or five weeks. And you only have to look at some of the comments that come under posts about Black Lives Matter to realise that there is um, an, an education problem, an awareness problem. So... People just go, well, oh, it's not a problem here because we don't have any black people. Mm -hmm. And they go, no, 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 there's 31,000, well, probably, well, at the last census, so we're looking at data that's nearly a decade old. Um, but at the last census, there was over 30,000 people who were, who were black. And that number's uh, bound to have gone up in 10 years. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I did some work with the Northern Ireland Food and Drink Association last year where we had all the main... Um, producers of uh food in the room sort of uh the my parks and people like that were all there and anecdotally they were talking about how their workforce has changed over the last decade and a lot of that has been driven by migrant labor um now we, we won't know the right figures until we till we get to the next census and uh, the only thing about a census is nobody can argue with it right because it, it's the it's the data and it's set in stone so there was over thirty thousand people now my gut feel is that 30,000 people skews quite heavily towards Belfast. But you'll have people in Belfast saying, we don't have any black people here. And you're going, hey, you really do. <laughs> you know, higher. Uh, but, you, you know, you really do. Yeah. And um, yet we have more racist attacks than sectarian attacks in Northern Ireland. Mm. But nobody then, you go, oh, we don't have a problem here. And that lack of education to the fact that there is a problem here means you can't have the conversation about the problem. You switch your radio on or you read a newspaper, or you watch the TV news, and I would say that every day, if not every day, probably four out of, say five out of seven, there will be a story which is based around the Troubles slash a sectarian incident. Yeah. Now, of course there's going to be that, right? You can't have a conflict that went on for that length of time and, and will, by the nature of its very conflict, will continue to impact the discussion of life in Northern Ireland on an ongoing basis. So I'm not saying we shouldn't be having those discussions, but you're probably talking five out of seven days. You look at any TV show that the BBC commissions, um, and it's a programme about the Troubles. You know, there was a, yeah. a, It was a powerful programme, one that was on maybe last year or the year before, which was the voice of the nurses during the Troubles. Mm. A, a fantastic piece of programme. I'm not criticising the programme makers, the quality, the output. It's amazing. But everything that's commissioned seems to be about the troubles. Yeah. And it's all right. Well, so, well, look, there's another program on the BBC. What is it? Oh, it's Give My Head Pieces coming back. And you're like, oh, look, 
Give my headpiece, Tim McGarry. Uh, is it Tim? It is Tim yeah, McGarry, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, brilliant, funny guy. I met him a couple of times. He's fantastic. But is is this what is this the cutting edge? Is this the pinnacle of what we've got? I like to say it's not a criticism of Tim. He's a, he's great and does great stuff. But you know what have we got? Oh, Nolan. What's on Nolan this week? Oh, it's something else about lemons or reasons. <laughs> and he like and and that Nolan. Nolan gets abuse, right? Nolan is a fantastic broadcaster. He's, oh, he's brilliant. He's a master at what he does. There's no he doubt is, about right? it. Yeah, you, you doff your cap to him. But there's an hour or what, however long his show is a day uh, of people shouting at each other from the same side of the divide, which you could pretty much dig out any audio for the last 30 years and drop it in now. Mm. We're stuck in this cycle of looking at the past, and it's an education problem. And I think we need to look at, the future a little bit more. And that kind of brings you into um, the Black Lives Matter movement and why it has an effect here. And actually, what effect does it have on the black community here by pretty much telling them they don't exist? Or if they do exist, well, tell them it's understandable that a problem happens because there's not very many of them. Mm. And you're like, I don't think I understand your thinking on that, to be honest with you. <laughs> and you're like, oh, God. So... Um, I think like the the big thing that's kind of stood out to me just in in hearing and listening there, it kind of is like what you said about grammar schools, how, you know, the parents are sending their kids to grammar schools. They have no incentive to change because, well, oh, look, their kids are fine and their kids go and they get the, you know, the good results and they get into the unis and they get into the, the whatever. It's kind of like because there is such a relatively small um, minority population in Northern Ireland, there's no real incentive for the majority to change or the majority mm-hmm. to take action. So yeah. how, through education, can we start to nudge ourselves in a different, yeah, better I, well, direction? I think the, the first step to making any change is to understanding there's a problem. And I think in Northern Ireland, we're at a stage where people don't realise there's a problem. So the more you can talk about it and you know i've had somebody sort of suggest to me recently that oh yeah you know, it's a bit boring hearing all this stuff about black lives matter isn't it and you're like a bit boring you want to see yeah, <laughs> you be on this end of it <laughs> let, let like, me tell you if i hear protestant or catholic one more time i'm gonna cry <laughs> yeah i like that you, you want to know what boring is you know i'll tell you what boring is boring is driving to belfast international airport to fly to london rather than flying from belfast city because every time i fly from belfast city i get stopped for um, random security checks. Mm. I'll tell you that's boring, right? That's really boring because it takes me three times as long to get there than it does to get from Bangor to Sydenham. Like, that's boring. So me telling you about these problems isn't boring. Me telling you that there was um, 1,025 racial incidents in Northern Ireland compared to 879 sectarian incidents reported to the police. That you know, if that's boring, yeah, you want to try being one of those one thousand and twenty-five people who don't leave the house anymore because mm. of fear of being attacked. I'll tell you, they'll tell you what boring is. So we need to start the conversation, and that conversation has to start from an understanding that there is a problem. And you know, a lot of people I've seen, uh, certainly in Northern Ireland, have been using phrases like, "Look." Um, I just see people. I don't see black or white. I just treat the people as they are. And, you know, if I see an arsehole, I see an arsehole. And if I see someone I like, I see someone I like. And I go, that's lovely. And I appreciate that sentiment. And I really do, because it comes from a good place. Right. And I'm not, you, you don't change hearts and minds by shouting at people and telling them the thick. Right. And that's not what I'm trying to do. I'd say, if that's what you think, 
I appreciate that, and it comes from a really, really good place. I would say two things. One, everybody has bias, mm-hmm. right? I have bias. Everyone has bias. I, I like to, to think that I do my best to check it, that I do my best to fight it, but we all have it, right? We have mental models because we're ex- our brains can't process all the information that we get every day, so we use shortcuts to help things happen. And that's where bias comes from because the shortcut of you see this, you believe that, and that happens, right? And it's just a shortcut, a way of not overloading your brain. So I'm aware I have bias and I try and correct it. But by saying you don't see color, you're actually saying I don't have any bias, which Mm. I don't believe is possible. It's also just just fundamentally not true. Like I understand the essence behind it, but it's like saying, oh, I don't notice hair color. You're like, yeah. um, no, you absolutely do. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. you, like you said, there is those inbuilt biases that yeah. will come into play no matter what you think you do. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, I say, but it comes from a good place and it really does. But then the, the second part of that is it's like, well, even if you are one of the very few people who doesn't have bias, right? And let's just assume for a second that you are, that doesn't stop the fact that lots of other people do. And not just people who are overtly racist who are going to chase you down the street and call you names right but systems and institutions and processes work against you when you're black and you go oh no you're just being a victim it's like no no the facts will back it up Mm. so there's been study after study after study of people sending exactly the same cv for a job but the only thing they change is the name. Crazy. So one name might be uh, Matthew Thompson, and the other name might be um, uh, Haji Choka. And Matthew Thompson will be called to interview significantly more times than Haji Choka. But your CVs are exactly the same except Crazy. for the name. Why is that? Well, because one name sounds white, mm. one name doesn't. So even if you don't see colour... And even if you are absolutely without bias, the bias is still there in the system, right? The, you know, the bias is still there in the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. If you are black and go to court, you are more likely to end up with a, a, a prison sentence that lasts longer than if you are white and with the same crime. These things are there, right? That's what we mean by institutional racism or systemic racism. It's not about saying that people are calling your names in the street and it makes people feel uncomfortable because they go, well, are you telling me that because I work in the civil service, I'm racist? Mm. But no, what I'm saying is the this, <laughs> this processes in the systems, if you left the civil service, would still be there and would <laughs> still have that same problem. And we need to look at fighting those. And because you, but what makes it worse is when you say, I don't have bias, you make it harder to have those discussions because you're mm. shutting down anyone who wants to have that discussion. Yeah. But these discussions absolutely need to keep happening. And that's where, uh, let's say that, so the, I see people engaging in, in the comments and shouting at people and telling them they're wrong or they're thick. It's like, has anybody ever changed their mind because somebody shouted at them on the internet? So, so true. You, you don't. You have to bring people along. You have, but you have to keep doing that by... Um, uh, you need people doing different things, right? And I haven't criticised um, people who were rioting in the US. So there were demonstrations and protests and there were people who were looting and setting fire to stuff. And it, 10 years ago, I'd have been really critical and I'd have said, that's not helping the cause. That's interfering with it. It's stopping it. But I, I look at it now and go, well, do you know what? 
the system in America is fundamentally broken. And it's not, you know, the system in America works exactly as it's supposed to do. And, and that's a problem. And you can't demonstrate against that system only in the way the system wants you to demonstrate. And companies over the years have gone, oh, we never knew it was this bad. And I was talking to a woman <laughs> in Atlanta and she said, they torched Apple, not once, but twice. Mm. Apple can't say they didn't know it was a problem anymore. And she was like saying, I wasn't there and that's not my thing. And I'm not going to go out on the streets and start burning stuff down. My way of dealing with this is to try and educate people, to try and form communities of people, to try and form groups of people who want to make a difference. I, uh, to use a, a particular phrase that I love, I think you're better being on the inside of the tent pissing out than the outside of the tent pissing in. Mm. And I'd much rather form groups of people who can try and change things from the inside and make things better. But if it wasn't for people setting fire to shit in America, we wouldn't be talking about this. So can I criticize those people for doing that? I don't know if I can. Mm. And that's a big change for me because let's say five years ago, 10 years ago, I'd have been like, those people are idiots who aren't helping the cause that we're trying to achieve. But I'm now getting older and going, this is the same cause that we've been trying to achieve ever since I first started thinking about racism when I was younger. And what's changed in all that time? Nothing. Oh, we've got the Equalities Act. Brilliant. Has that stopped people being discriminated against? Has that stopped black people being stopped and searched more? Has that stopped black people spending more time in prison? No, it hasn't. Right. So if that's not happening in America, those discussions aren't happening here. Mm. And as much as I'm not advocating for the destruction of property... I'm not criticizing the people who did it either. And I appreciate that people and people going, well, you, you, you've got to be one or the other. And I'm, I'm not. I'm just saying that they have done a job which has made this national news, which lit a fire under protesters here, which then lands in, it makes us have a discussion about what happened here. And you want to localize that a little bit. The PSNI turned up at the Black Lives Matter parade, uh, um, demonstration where people were quite clearly social distancing. You could see they'd marked the floor out. You could see people stood in the crosses and started handing out fines because people were breaching the, the regulations. And you might go, okay, they were breaching the regulations. They shouldn't have been gathering in groups. The, the law was there. People got a fine. And you could say that and go, law and order did what it was supposed to do. Tick. Okay. The following week, there was a bunch of white people turned up outside City Hall to defend our monuments because they obviously needed defending hmm. um, to defend our monuments. They gathered. There was no social distancing. They stood together. The PS and I were there. Not one fine was handed out. Wow. Now, when you... And, I, and again, I, I'm not kicking the PS and I. I know several policemen, or peelers, sorry, it's the best of Belfast podcast. I know, <laughs> I know quite a number Come of on, peelers. Come on, bro, know your audience. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I, I know a number of peelers, and both here and back home, and, you know, I, geez, it's not a job I do. I think they do a really difficult job, and, and I think they do good things. And I, I'm not saying that the policemen were sent down to Black Lives Matter were racist who were there handing out because they were like, let's give fines to black people. Yeah. Right? That That's not what happened. But when you look at a system and an institution, you have to say, all right, well, was it a race thing then? 
Were they just trying to, oh, but they were just making a point. Were they asked to go down and do it? Were they asked not to do it? And it's been reported to the police ombudsman, so there's going to be an investigation into that. Was it a directive from on high? Was it just the officers on duty who took their on their initiative? What was the reasons behind that? But from looking at the basics of it, there was, I can't remember, was it 15, 20, 25 fines handed out at Black Lives Matter parades? Not a huge number, given the number of people who showed up. Um... But you compare, you got, if you say that's okay because they were breaking the rules, and that, and I'm happy with that, right? You go, okay, they broke the rules. What about the people the week after who broke the rules? Where were their fines? And that's the bit where you go, these are the, the things that black people have to put up with and go, oh, it's boring. Go, no. What's boring is having to find the money to pay for your fine or having to appeal your fine and go through that and query. And that's boring. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so don't tell me talking about it's boring. Totally. Something that I find helpful. Uh, around the the idea of privilege is that privilege is simply not having to worry about something that other people have to. Um, You know, as a white person, uh, whether I was in America or whether I'm in Northern Ireland, there are certain things that I don't have to worry about because of the color of my skin. And that's a pretty, that's a good working definition of privilege for me. Something that I I, I find so interesting through all of these discussions and all these situations, and it's 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 been happening even as you've been talking the last five minutes and talking about the rioting in America. You just notice all these things flare up inside yourself. Like, you know, some of it really defensive, some of it really um, angry, some of it, no, I, I really disagree with you. And part of it's like, and it's so interesting to see what is going on inside and to try to understand what are some of my biases or why do I have this sort of reaction? And I've just written down here, like just while you were speaking, I feel like, you know, I'm a big believer that, that the specific is a good kind of roadmap to the universal. So the things that you personally, the how you react is a good kind of way to figure out maybe how other people are reacting as well. And I kind of wrote down here, like, I feel like I have two main responses to the issue of racism. The first one's guilt. The second one is is a defensiveness like this desire to defend like oh what do you mean like are you saying that my dad didn't work hard or my dad didn't do this or my dad didn't do that and then but both of these things to this point both these reactions they either lead to passiveness or they lead to aggression but they don't necessarily lead to any change or any action in the right direction so something that i'm in the process of trying to learn is what does that action look like what can we actually do or what can what action can we take to actually push this forward in a meaningful way beyond feeling guilty and retreating into passivity or getting super aggressive and responding kind of with you know a defensive aggression or whatever mm-hmm. yeah and, and i suppose one thing i, sh- I should say from um a marketing just to, to lean back to a little bit of marketing theory about um segmentation and understanding your audience so uh, it, there's 31,000 probably is a minimum black people in northern ireland um from a variety of backgrounds sort of african british caribbean americans there's, there's all sorts right so i um I'm not, nor do I I ever want to be the spokesperson for the black community because I think (laughs) there's there's a sort of, uh, not an arrogance in it, but there's this misconception that all black people, you know, you go, oh, it's the black community and it makes it sound like all black people think the same thing. So I I can only tell you the sorts of things I think. And again, it's context specific. So 
some of the things that I think we need to do in the UK generally, actually, I think we need to have a discussion because we're starting from a different place here. So if you go to, uh, I'm from Bradford, right? And in Bradford, it's something like a quarter of the population are from a Southeast Asian background, sort of usually Northern India, Southern Pakistan. Um, and there's a, another sort of significant uh, bunch of Caribbeans and Africans and then another significant Eastern European population. So you've got, uh, I'm guessing, probably half of the population of Bradford or just under half of the population of Bradford has a background that's not necessarily from Bradford. And you have to take a little bit of a leap with that because you're talking sort of second, third generations now. Uh, so I'm not saying that a, an Asian kid born in Bradford who's third generation born in Bradford isn't from Bradford. I'm just trying to give you a bit of a, a, a sense of how the context is yeah. different there. So... You're talking 25, 30% of the Brad population of Bradford is not white. Another good chunk, uh, Eastern European migrants as well. The actions that are needed in Bradford to fight racism are possibly different to here, yeah. where we've got 1% of the population, which is possibly quite skewed towards Belfast as well. So, you know, if you cross the ban and go west, um, that 1% is possibly, you know, it could well be 0.25%. It yeah. could be even lower. I, I don't know. I don't have the figures, but um, what I'm saying is it, it, what we need to do is quite context specific. So um, from um, a work perspective, and I think one of the things I'm focused on is you can't fight every battle. And because I, I am in business, as boring as that sounds, I'm a member of the Institute of Directors. I have a little bit of profile in Northern Ireland because I speak at a lot of events. I go to a lot of things. I kind of put myself around a lot. Um, I'm looking at how we can change things within business, how we can look at um, what does leadership look like? What does diversity look like? How can we form a pathway for people who are from ethnic minorities, who are black, to come through and feel that there is a future for them in Northern Ireland? Um, what, so what does that look like? There's a group of us who are going to uh, start talking um, in mid-July, I think it is, about what we can actually do to, to help affect that change. I have spoken to the Institute of Directors, to Kirsty, who runs the IOD, and to the team there, and they've been really supportive um, on the back of some work that the IOD in, in the northwest, northwest England, um, run by Claire Ebry, and what they're doing there. Um, again, very different context. So what I'm looking at is how we can change the business discussion so that people are aware that there is a problem with race in Northern Ireland, and make sure that their systems and processes do the best that they can to weed out that problem as opposed to reinforcing it. And I think one of the one of the good things I would say, although not necessarily, I know that there's work to do, is that because of the way that um, employment used to work in Northern Ireland in the, the days of the Troubles, the some of the changes that have been made to equality in the workplace where um, there's a lot of sort of anonymous job applications done now and things like that. So you don't um, skew based on what school people went to and things like that. So I think some of that helps, but I think there's still a bit of a way to go to, to understand that. I mean, if you look at the, um, when you have to tick forms in Northern Ireland, there's a box that says, are you Catholic or are you Protestant or, or other, or, you know, uh, the ethnic minority boxes is, is usually white Protestant, white Catholic, other. And you're like, um, <laughs> there's a few others, uh, you know, within yeah, that. Others are so, pretty big category there, bro. 
yeah, exactly. You know, and you're like, I, well, I'm, I'm neither. You know, I, I don't fit into any of those definitions. So I, I think we've got work to do and, and a journey to walk on. But what we need to do here at first, I think, is uh, to go back to marketing. You've got this, uh, the Ada funnel, awareness, interest, desire, action. So it's like a, a funnel of activity. I, I think very much we're at the awareness stage in Northern Ireland, mm. um, which does need to move to action, that things need to happen. But if you look, if you're talking about what you do in London, we're way past the stage where this needs to be talked about as yeah. an issue, yeah. right? You know, stop and search has been a problem in London since the 80s, and probably longer than that. That's, you know, so... Everybody knows that stop and search skews a huge racial bias to it. Yet we keep reintroducing stop and search powers because it's political football that Tory politicians love to show that they're tough on law and tough, you know, tough on law and order and tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime and all that shit. Yeah, so we're right, very much at the action stage with that. Mm. That just needs to change. Stuff needs to happen now. Yeah. To change that, so but in Northern Ireland, I think we're at an early. We need to start the conversation. We need to keep the conversation going. And yes, we need action to happen. But I think we need to have a huge awareness issue first. Yeah. So that Ada model, you know, the awareness, interest, desire, action. I yeah. think you know. I agree. We are in the awareness stage. I think that naturally will follow into interest. Any ideas of how to kind of move us down from interest to desire? Um. <sighs> So it's weird in that, and again, to talk you through how my views have changed, I am moving towards, and, and I only say moving towards because I'm not there yet. Um, I, I would probably say within 10 or 15 years, I think that we might need to move towards a system of positive discrimination uh, to, in the action phase. So is this like and, affirmative action? Like sort of yeah. like what PS and I would do with uh, Protestants and Catholics. There needs to be a certain percentage of one and a certain percentage of the other, and we, we, we can't bend that. Yeah. Okay. I, and I, uh, you know, you go, okay, well, why does that matter? I think in the next census next year, we'll probably find that the population of, of black people has gone up significantly. But I, I'm doing a lot of work with councils at the minute, right, um, on destination and tourism marketing and things like that and, and bringing more people to an area not just for tourism but for work reasons or whatever and there's a phrase that comes up when you talk about economic development and it's called market failure um so basically the government general rule of thumb the government can't spend money on stuff if the market's going to do it right because it distorts the market so you can only the government can only come in and buy buildings and redevelop something if there's market failure so if the government wants to build offices to let out to public to the public uh, to set businesses up in if the private sector will do it the government can't do it there's a lot of nuances in that but generally speaking that's it so you have to prove a market failure has occurred therefore you can do it that's what, how it works in economic development. So when you talk about social development, the market failure has occurred. Mm. Black people are still being underrepresented. We're still being uh, negatively affected by lots of things that we're still waiting for the market to correct. Now, we've been waiting 10, 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, it was Windrush Day the other day. So the Windrush generation have been here for 60, 70 years or whatever it is now. And we're still waiting. How much longer? You know, in economic development terms, market failure happens over three, four, five years. People step in and do something. When it's social development, we look at market failure and go, all oh, right, 
what are we going to do to change that? Oh, well, no, we couldn't stop. We couldn't start doing positive discrimination. No, no, positive action. <laughs> no, because, look, who wants to be think? Who wants to think they've just got a job because of the colour of the skin? Yeah. No, I don't. And that's where I'm not fully in that camp. It's hard, it's, man, isn't it? It's like, ah. It is. And I don't, I don't fully know the answer. Because if you said to me now, okay, devise a scheme of positive action, I'd be going, I, <laughs> no I, I'm still not sure it's the right thing. But the, what I do know is that unless you keep driving, unless someone keeps fanning the flames, right, mm. um, inertia is the easy option. And that's not people sitting there going, I want to subjugate the black population. It's people coming into work every day and having a really full entry and having lots and lots of problems that need solving. And the way it works is you deal with the most pressing problems. Mm. And if you stop talking about this, it stops being the most pressing problem for people. Well, it's kind of like what and you were something saying else takes over about the pensions. You know, mm-hmm. the inertia, and sometimes yeah. it takes that flip where people have to opt out of it before actually change. You know, uh, is part of it. So yeah, I, I I think you know certainly if I was given the job of you know devising an affirmative action scheme or a positive action scheme, I would be oh my goodness, what the heck. Um, yeah. But also. Maybe it is extreme action is what's required. And I mean, if you look at, if you, as soon as I said that, I was like, oh, well, duh, Matthew, like, of course, extreme action is required. So maybe that, that is it. Maybe we just need to have the courage yeah. to step forward. I don't know. But, but I, and like I said, I don't know that I think that, that I, I'm not sure it's the right answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I know that five years ago, I was 100% against it. Yeah. I'm not 100% against it now. I'm on the fence and I know which direction I'm moving in. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, it's almost it, in um in a lot of uh, sort of big business stuff. They have what they call a sunset clause. So basically, you have a certain amount of time to do something, and if you don't do it by a certain time, the sunset clause kicks in, and you just get and and it finishes, right? So you're basically writing in: if you do A, B, and C, D happens. If you don't do A, B, and C, you just shut down on this date. Mm. And it almost feel it's basically putting a gun on the table, right? It's like yeah, yeah. you've got to do this thing, and if not, we're going to fire the gun. I, I, I think maybe that's the type of answer we need. We need to go right. Well, you've got ten years or fifteen years mm. to move these metrics from where they are now yeah. to where they need to be. Yeah. And if they don't move, this happens on that date. Wow. And it's sign and we yeah, and there is your affirmative action scheme. So you've got fifteen years to sort this shit out. Bro, and if you don't sort I it out, like that. we're that gonna is do this. Good. And that focuses people's minds. That keeps it at the top of the list for CEOs, for boards of directors, for senior civil servants. They come in and they can see that clock ticking that says, Right, we've got to move that dial from here to there. That's what strategic planning is for businesses. They make five, te- five to ten year bets on something, and that's what the board sign off on. The board go right, okay. We want to get our company out of this industry and into that industry. You know, it might be Apple taking a multi year bet on watches. Right? They don't say this watch is going to be a success in year one. It was. They're taking a multi year bet on moving into wearables and connecting them to phones and moving out of iPads. And they do that because they can see the data and they can see what they're doing. But that's done because they're, the discussion they're having is their share price needs to go from X to Y yeah, yeah. over that period of time. And, it's also and a to little do bit that, of, they need to separate. It's also a little bit of nudge because it's like, well, yeah. no one wants 
well, not very many people want to inject a AI computer chip into their forehead right now or into their wrist, but mm-hmm. uh, people might want to wear a watch. So it's like that slow, slow nudge, like in that in that direction as well. Yeah, definitely. So I I I wonder if that is the yeah is the there's a gun of positive discrimination is set and is primed to go off in July 2030. And the the goalposts along the way are you need to move these markers to from point A to point B. And that would focus people's minds and say, we've got to do this. Now, I, there's probably a lot of holes in that idea. There's probably lots oh, of, of problems and stuff. But I think we need to start having that conversation that says, how much longer do we have to wait for this problem to be solved before we have to admit that the market has failed? Because in economic development terms, you know, you only have to go around town, some towns in Northern Ireland to walk around and go, there's been a market failure here. Mm. And then you start talking to the local council and go, oh no, there's an economic development plan or we're trying to make it into um, a local enterprise zone so that you don't have to pay rates. Or we want to make land into a free port so that you don't pay docking fees when you're... All right, so there was a market failure and quite quickly you turned it round because you wanted to do this to, to make it attractive to come to. And why is that? Well, because from business people's perspective, they understand that language, they see the problem and they see a solution because it affects them. Yeah. And it's back to that thing about education and the grammar school system here is that it, when it doesn't affect you, you don't worry about it. And that, that's human nature, though. Do you know what I mean? Yes, like, totally. that, that's just how we work. So we well, have that's to why make the it matter to people. Works because I'm a big believer, like, you know, humans don't really change unless it's too painful for them not to. And by yeah. kind of putting the, putting the gun on the table, that that is sometimes. I mean, you've, I know this in my own life. You know this in your own life. Sometimes that's what it takes. You know, mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. You need you need a deadline. So yeah, I, I I don't know if it's fully the answer, but I, I'm going to keep talking. And the smarter people than me talking about this as well. And <laughs> um and and the other thing as well is younger people talking about it. If you looked at the Black Lives Matter uh, parade in Belfast uh, demonstration, it wasn't a parade. Um, <laughs> you're you're sad on that word parade like aren't you <laughs> I, I've, I've been here too long yeah, you, right it's, you, you've it's, been uh, assimilated into the culture yeah. <laughs> it's, it's uh culture of the k yeah no but um you, you look at that demonstration right if i had to guess the average age looked like 25 26 yeah, yeah. right it, it wasn't being led by old fossils like me it was young people there to make a difference we need to hear their voices as well because we need them to come through and be the leaders of the next generation. You know, I, I, I jokingly heard a suggestion from somebody once who said that the best way to sort Northern Ireland out it would be to ban anyone over the age of 35 from entering politics. <laughs> and, you know, it, it was said in, in humour, but it said in jest, but it's not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, we, if we just leave the future of Northern Ireland to people like you, to some of the young people who turned up at Black Lives Matter parades, to people in the communities... Because those communities still have problems. You know, uh, Catholic communities, Protestant communities, working class communities still have problems. But when I talk to the younger people and when I see them and I bring them into workshops or I meet them at events, you talk to them like they're full of ideas, enthusiasm and hope. And we do our best to beat all those three things out of them. And it's like, let's just get out of the way and and leave them. Yeah, of course they'd make some mistakes, but hell, you can't say the current group aren't already making mistakes. Um, Leave us a few wise, grey-haired people to to, to help Uh, us on our way. (laughs) Send them all off on a boat into the sunset (laughs) and just leave them all be and leave it to the under-35s. But really, I mean, 
you look at some mistakes that we might make, but actually it's not as if we're not making mistakes at the minute. So just leave it to the youth. That's it. Sack everyone over 40 and have an election with everyone under 35 and leave them to it. There you go. There's an idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thanks for your time, man. I I appreciate you um, sharing everything you have. I realize now that we really have done two things here. We've had a a discussion-style podcast and uh, an interview life story podcast. So thanks for for blending them. Uh, There's just a a few stock questions that we... um, kind of end every episode with uh the first one is uh this is a hard pivot there's no smooth uh skillful transition here this is a, a hard landing of the plane um most challenging moment of your life and how are we able to overcome it i did say t- did say it would be a very hard pivot <laughs> um most challenging moment of most challenging moment of my life um Oh, good God. Um, there's, As far as I'm aware, there's two sorts of divorces, uh, messy divorces and really fucking messy mm. divorces. Uh, mine was in the latter category. Uh, still is ongoing. And um, it's probably not fair to dive into the uh, the whys and wherefores of it because totally. I'm the one with the microphone. And there's that old old phrase, there's three sides to every Absolutely. story, your side, my side, and the truth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, and yeah, but I, yeah, and it's probably not fair to tell you all my side of the story when no one else has a right to reply. But so every hell, it's been a yeah. lot of years and a lot of hassle and a lot of heartache. Um, yeah. So yeah, kind of sticking very general and kind of detached. Then, uh, how have you been able to move through that? Um. <laughs> so a uh, couple of things. I um, I uh, met a, a new partner, Catherine who has been uh, amazing and wonderful mm. and kind of uh, helped me along that journey. And and also kind of discovered uh, stoicism. Now, yes. I wouldn't go, I'm, I'm some sort of uh, stoic expert or anything like that, far from it. But uh, a friend of mine, Steve, started a, a YouTube series called Struggling to Succeed, where he started... Um, sharing a lot of stoic philosophy stuff and to be fair i, I only watched it because in his early videos he'd, he'd have he'd spend all his time putting these videos together and have four people watching them oh isn't that um, that's just the way that's the brutal reality of life on I mean, the content world it's so yeah. hard <laughs> oh god yeah i mean that then no, that's the disaster of youtube isn't it so i started watching them just to bump his views up yeah, more bring than it anything up to else. five <laughs> yeah oh god i'll do him a favor and show oh, you should watch this it's really interesting and um and guess what it was really interesting and and it, it kind of took me on a bit of a journey, which at the same time as, as Kat helping me um, sort of round off some of the, the more rough edges, helped me start to appreciate that there's different ways to look at everything in life. And actually, if you own a lot of the problems that you realize, you you know, it's not the world getting at you. It, it's, it's you reacting to those problems. And um, that sort of equation of... Um, action plus reaction equals outcome mm. when actually you know i can't control this like no but you can't control you and you can control how you react to those situations Dude. and yeah you know i still go I, I still get angry at things and but in the early days of the divorce i used to get angry for days and not sleep and be miserable and just an awful bastard to be around a lot of the time um and now, uh, I, yeah, stuff still annoys me. Stuff still makes me angry, but I kind of process it. And ten minutes, you know, uh, ten fifteen minutes later, I'm like, 
how do you react to this? So good. This is only bothering it. Right. Okay, move on. So awesome. you go. So I can kind of pop it in a box and, yeah. and move on now. Yeah. Uh, I think it was Macklemore turned me on to <laughs> Stoicism. It's like this old Macklemore <laughs> song, and he, I think he's paraphrasing like uh, Epictetus or something. He's like, I don't control yeah. life, but I control how I react to it. And I was like, oh my word, this is it. This is the secret. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, it, 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 when you start to, to look at that in those ways and start to realize that um, you have much more... It, bizarrely owning the problems gives you much more control and yeah. power over the rest of your life and yeah. um and those bits uh have been really really i think it, i think it was another seneca quote about that there are two two handles to bear any problem by um and i remember i was like what but when you look at it it's like you know it's either the the, the kind of the pity and the blame one or the mm. actually this was my fault one and and how you own that um and then the other one, which I think uh, I shared with you, uh, was we suffer more in imagination than in reality. And that sort of approach of, oh, shit, it's just it's the brain weasels. It's the, the thing in your head telling you that it's not going to happen or it's going to be a disaster. It's going to be this. It's going to be that. And it's like, just control those and go, no, I'm going to do it. I'm yeah. going to deliver. I'm going to move on. And uh, yeah, so th- those are the, the ways I managed to... Um, uh, to, to do it and I stayed away from I got a bit of advice from a friend of mine who was going through a divorce at the time he was like stay off the whiskey because nothing good happens wow and uh, Isn't that probably the best there, advice like, I've ever had yeah oh, definitely wow <laughs> brilliant um, flip side then of that uh, but no less easier I suppose to answer how about the most successful moment um this could turn into the longest podcast ever because first of all you'd probably have to define success um <laughs> chapter so one <laughs> chapter one define success um oh, it's been however success. you however you take it just oh good god i, I mean I, I i i'm 40 now and i look at my life and go how did this kid from a council estate in bradford get involved in all of this stuff i mean i've I've traveled the world. I've got an amazing daughter. I've sat in some some of the biggest companies in the world and worked with them. And um, I, 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 I'm in a brilliant relationship with a lovely woman um, who appears to, despite my, my best um, efforts, she appears to really love me as well. <laughs> and I, I look at it and go, well, you know, which one of all of these things that I've been involved with would uh, what a class is, is the biggest success. Um, oh, dear Lord. I don't know. Um, I, I really don't know. Um, I, I just Let like, me try this, okay? What are you most proud of? What am I most proud of? If we go that way, I would, the, the, the thing that makes me most proud in my life is my daughter. Mm. Um, it seems a bit, a bit of a cliche, uh Kira's 10 she's 11 soon um she might already be 21 I'm not quite sure <laughs> um she she likes fighting me uh she loves wrestling on the trampoline she loves telling me that I don't know anything um she loves giving me that look that uh young girls give the dads that's just like oh god dad <laughs> uh and I love embarrassing her uh, singing, dad dancing, and just being that, that awful dad that you never really wanted. Um, so, yeah, awesome. I, what am I most proud of, Kira? Um, cool. That would probably be the answer to awesome. that. Uh, if, you could take, <laughs> if you could take anyone from Northern Ireland, dead or alive, out for coffee, out for a pint, who would you take, where would you take them and why? 
anyone from Northern Ireland, dead or alive, out for a pint. So I, I've luckily I've got a photograph taken with this person, but I didn't actually have a chat with them. Uh, it'd be, uh, and I've not forgotten his name, Northern Ireland goalkeeper, 1986 World Cup, um, Pat great Jennings, hair, no. Pat Jennings, Pat ah, Jennings, goodness me, it was the hair that gave it away. I don't know football yeah, too well, but I was like, oh, there's only one with the sweet hair, bro. That's Pat. <laughs> I, I, Pat Jennings had that haircut in 1986 at the World Cup, and he's still got it now, Rock which is it. first of, one of the things I'd ask him about. But I, So, 86, I was six years old. It's the first World Cup I remember watching. I don't remember a huge amount about it, just like watching this bright yellow being beamed into my screen. <laughs> um, it was in Mexico, midsummer like 100 degrees heat playing this World Cup there. And I just remember like these really bright screens being beamed into my, t- my TV when I was a kid, sat watching it with my brother and just being completely fascinated by it. Uh, Northern Ireland wasn't really even aware of it. Brazil, I was aware of, played Northern Ireland. I, w- I was a defender. I played football and I always played as a defender. I don't know why. I never wanted to be a striker, never wanted to be a winger. I just loved being a defender, mm. ruining everybody's fun. Maybe that's it. <laughs> And Brazil had this defender called uh, Yosimar who got the ball from right back. And like Northern Ireland just dropped off, dropped off. And he just took it to the halfway line and he took it a bit further. And then from about five yards over the halfway line, just absolutely smashed this ball. And I've never seen anything like it. And it flew like a rocket. And you see Pat Jennings goes and tries to tip it over, stands up and sort of shakes his head in that way as if to go, what the hell's just happened? (laughs) Yosimar runs off with this amazing celebration. I, I kind of flapping his arms like a bird and running with his knees up. Um, I've just knocked something over my desk. I'm you kind got of doing it. the you celebration. You got very there. excited there. <laughs> yeah, uh, so he, like, he's running with his knees up as if he's doing knees up, uh, flapping his arms as he's running away. And I was just completely bewitched by it. I was like, wow, what a celebration. What a goal. This is what defenders should do. Mm. Um, and every time I scored a goal playing football, which was only like once a year, <laughs> the Yosima celebration was, was, was rolled out. So uh, I'd love to take Pat Jennings for a pint and I'd sit him down and go, you had the best seat in the house for that. What was it like? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I don't know whether that question had land fairly well. Uh, and where would I go? Um, well, I... Oof. Do you know what? It'd be the salty dog in Bangor. Mm, um, Bangor. Only... Bangor, darling. BT20, I'll have you know. Um, at this time of year, May, June, July, into early August, you can get a pint, you can sit on the terrace and you can watch the sun going down, oh. kind of over to looking towards Helen's Bay, that direction over nice. was Carrick Fergus, and the sun sets. And this time of year, it goes on forever. I've got pictures of me sat down there with, with my mate Nico, kind of 10.30 at night, watching the sun go down and it just feels like the day goes on forever um so i'd sit there with pat uh having a beer asking him what it was like having the best seat in the house for the greatest goal ever scored unreal Andy, mate final question um always the question every podcast seems to end on but uh i you know if it's not broke don't fix it (laughs) if you could go back in time to let's say like an 18 year old andy uh, mm-hmm. wherever he was at, whatever he was doing, and you had a couple of minutes of 18-year-old Andy's time, what sort of things would you say to him? Uh, four words. Don't be a dick. Um, would probably be the four words I'd say. <laughs> Although 18-year-old uh, Andy wouldn't have listened. He'd just turn around and go, yeah, whatever, dickhead. Um, 
yeah, I, I think, you know, the thing that nobody tells you when you're a kid, uh, or maybe they do tell you, you just don't listen, is to have patience. Um, you, there's always somebody who does better than you, right? So I went to school with Danny Kadamatri, who went to play for Everton, scored a great goal against Liverpool. And I don't know what he was earning, but back then he was probably earning 15, 20 grand a week by mm. the time he was 18 or 19. Um, yeah, I went to university and there's lads left uni and got jobs that were earning this 2001 straight out of uni onto grad schemes, earning 40,000 quid a year. Uh, kids who started the businesses and by 25 were earning 100 grand a year and you feel you failed you're like oh I'm not doing as well as this guy or that guy or that girl where am I going wrong and or do you want to come on this holiday oh how much is it going to cost how much I can't do that one (laughs) and and you you attribute your whole worth as a person to how much you're earning Um, now over over the years I've moved away from that and I you know I uh, certainly, you know, I, I do all right. I'm not complaining about it, but I'm driven by different things, mm. not just about earning the money. And that patience to keep doing the right thing and good stuff will happen and stop worrying about the money, uh, which is easy and a bit glib to say. But, you know, I know now when I changed job once because there was a, a stack more cash in it and it was comfortably the worst decision I've ever made from a career point of view. I chased the money. The job was awful. The people were awful. Uh, Not all of the people, sorry. The leadership were awful. And it was an awful decision. But, you know, I think that's one of those things that you have to learn. You can't be told. Um, But they're the things I'd be telling myself anyway. That's awesome. Well, Andy, honestly, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for everything you shared and uh, for sharing so generously. And, uh, yeah, really, really appreciate it. Lovely to hear some of your thoughts. Lovely to hear some more of your story too. No worries, and uh, good luck editing that. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of editing, uh, Andy is a great podcast. Uh, he's just launched it recently, Strategy Sessions. That's uh, the one, yeah. All about Be- marketing. The best podcast to come out in all Yeah, it is, it is. Here's my, here's my like, um, what do you flipping call that? Here's my endorsement. Strategy Sessions is the best podcast in Northern Ireland. Uh, it is funny. It's dynamic. I kind of describe it as like a marketing version of like the Jimmy Fallon show. There's so much going on. It's really, really engaging. And uh, also, if you'd like to find out more about the whole conversation of Black Lives Matter and race. Andy did an incredible kind of interrupted episode there where you were going to start to talk about America and then all that kicked off and you pivoted, as the word is, uh, into a really interesting conversation about all that stuff as well. And uh, links to Andy's socials and his LinkedIn and everything on the website or click the wee box where you're listening to this and you'll see it in the description as well. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. Really appreciate that. I had a blast doing this. I I hope you really enjoyed it as well. And uh, look forward to sharing another one with you very soon. And Andy, mate, thanks again, honestly. Uh, Really, really class. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Cheers, mate. Cheers.